Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr Todd Fraser. Today I'll be speaking with Alan Garland, MD, about the article Interaction Between Fluids and Vasoactive Agents on Mortality in Septic Shock, a Multicenter Observational Study, published in Critical Care Medicine. Alan is the co-head of the Section of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada. Recent sepsis research has focused heavily on the early aggressive resuscitation phase. Both fluids and vasoconstrictors have been used in this context to restore circulatory status, and both are titrated to the same clinical endpoints, meaning that the way either is used will influence the other. In their paper, Alan and his colleagues sought to tease out these complex interactions. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Alan, you're about to have your paper published in Critical Care Medicine. What was the background to your study? Well, septic shock is important. It's important because it's common and it's important because it's lethal. Standard management for the hypotension per se is fluids and vasoactive agents. And while a number of previous studies have assessed the impact of fluids on outcomes for septic shock, very few have looked at vasoactive agents. And to our knowledge, No prior studies have analyzed both fluids and vasoactive drugs and see how they simultaneously influence outcomes. But since these two modalities are used together for the exact same indications and usually titrated to similar clinical endpoints, it seems extremely likely that their impact on outcomes would be subject to important interactions. So using an available international database of septic shock patients, we set out to begin the process of clarifying the nature of these interactions. Tell me about the design of the study. How did you go about it and why did you choose to do it in this way? Well, to a large degree, as a retrospective study, our analysis was dictated by the nature of the data that we had available. This is the Cooperative Antimicrobial Therapy of Septic Shock Database, CATS. In particular, the information includes about the amount and type of fluids is, first of all, only over the first 24 hours, and in bins of how much and what types were given, hours 0 to 1, hours 1 to 6, and hours 6 to 24. So that organization informed and actually mandated some of the aspects of our analysis. Nonetheless, the fluid information was quite detailed and nice to work with, but the information that we had about the vasoactive drugs was much more limited. Specifically, the only thing we really had was when any such drug was first begun, in which of those three time bins, 0 to 1, 1 to 6, 6 to 24 hours. So in setting out to look at interactions between fluid timing and volume, in particular between fluid timing and volume on the one hand and the timing of starting vasoactive drugs on the other hand, first we required that patients got both fluids and vasoactive drugs within the first 24 hours after shock onset. And another important aspect was since this is a retrospective study, we needed to try to adjust our analysis for potentially confounding variables such as severity of illness, the Apache score for an example. So in that analysis, our outcome was hospital mortality, which is in the CATS database, and we used multivariable logistic regression to adjust for the potentially confounding variables. So to go on a little further, the main fluid variable that we used was the total volume of all fluids given in each of the three time bins. The variable that we had available related to vasoactive drug was in which of those time bins those drugs were first begun. 
Now, as I said, our goal here was to look at the interactions between them, hypothesizing that there would be important interactions. So describing and understanding interactions in a multivariable model is always challenging. So what we chose to do was the way we thought was easiest to understand and easiest to describe. So for the total volume in each time bin, we divided it into tercels, low, medium, and high. So that's three times three times three combinations, and then times another three because which bin, which time bin the vasoactive drugs were begun. So this leaves us complicated, it's a complicated concept, with 81 combinations of 0 to 1 hour volume, 1 to 6 hour volume, 6 to 24 hour volume, and in which of those three time bins the vasoactive drugs were started. So that's the nature of the data and the, the way we designed the study. So if I understand the premise correctly, it was to look at the way that the, or the impact of one of those interventions on the other and how they work together and what their outcomes might be, is that correct? Yes, the complex interactions of how those four variables, the amount of volume in each time bin and when the vasoactive drugs were, be, were begun, to see how those four variables interact with each other in an arbitrarily complex way, because we looked at all possible combinations, to influence hospital mortality in these patients. So the inference then, for example, may be that if you use vasoconstrictors early titrating to certain goals, you may reduce the amount of fluids that you were giving and therefore have an impact on the outcome of the patient. Is that right? Well, we did find, in fact, as an adjunctive analysis, we, we looked at the amount of fluids given in the first six hours as a function of when the vasoactive drugs were begun. And we did find, as you just indicated, that patients who had their vasoactive drugs beginning in the first hour actually had less fluids given. And now, although our data doesn't directly address the reason for that, we can hypothesize since fluids and vasoactive drugs are given for the same indications, shock and hypoperfusion, one could imagine that if you just choose, for whatever reason, to start your vasoactive drugs early, well, that will raise blood pressure and maybe you will not recognize the fact that the patients are still volume responsive and relatively under-resuscitated and give less volume. And we did find that that was the case. So there's obviously some very important potential outcomes for this. What were the results of the trial that you found? Well, again, the full results are complicated because of the four-way interaction between the four variables that we were looking at. But I can try to summarize in the following way. First, we found that there were very large and important interactions between the four variables, the amount of fluid given and the timing of vasoactive drugs. Lowest mortality was associated with giving the higher amount of fluids in the first hour, higher amount of fluids in the first to sixth hour, and starting the vasoactive drugs after the first hour. So I'll just give you the median amounts of fluids. So the higher amounts of fluids in the zero to one hour and one to six hour range, the medians for that in those bins was two liters in the first hour, 3.7 liters in the, in, between hours one and six and giving the vasoactive, starting not, well, let me say it the opposite way, not starting the vasoactive drugs until the end of the first hour, so in the one to six hour time period. And I'll just highlight one thing that I think is important. I said earlier, in response to an earlier question, that we found that people who had their vasoactive drugs started in the first hour received less fluids. But the phenomenon I'm describing now is not due to that because we did have some patients in our data set who had their vasoactive drugs started in the first hour and despite that got lots of fluids. And 
Therefore, in our analysis, this conclusion that patients who have their vasoactive drugs begun in the first hour after the onset of persistent shock had higher hospital mortality is not attributable to less fluids being given because their vasoactive drugs were started. That's a separate phenomenon. So what's the physiological basis behind this? If this pans out to be a true phenomenon, what, yes. what do you think is acting behind this to give you those results? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Well, you're referring, I'm assuming, to the potential for worse outcomes in people who get their vasoactive drugs begun very early? Yes, that's right. Okay. Well, um, we can only speculate, of course. Again, this phenomenologic study doesn't address mechanism at all. But I guess one possibility is that vasoconstriction in the presence of absolute or relative hypovolemia might further impair organ perfusion, contributing to increased mortality. When I was training back in the 80s, there was this concept of cold septic shock and warm septic shock, and that concept has gone away. And because what was used to be called cold septic shock, which in the 70s and 80s was thought to maybe be a different phenomenon, was really discovered to simply be septic shock in the absence of adequate volume resuscitation. And those people, when you gave them volume, turned from the cold, peripherally vasoconstricted kind of shock to warm and, if you want to call it, luxury perfusion of their skin so that they were no longer cold. And so it's at least plausible that early use of vasoconstrictors before an adequate amount of fluids have been given might actually be bad for people. I mean, it makes sense physiologically if you have somebody who's relatively underfilled and you push on their precapillary sphincters, it'll make their blood pressure high, but it will not improve their forward flow and therefore their perfusion. So again, this is just a conceptualization. This study does not let us directly address the mechanism. So the major finding would appear to be that you need to front load your fluid management and to start the vasoconstrictors once that fluid resuscitation has been established. Yeah. How strongly do you feel that the results support that now? What are the limitations of the paper, particularly in regard to the retrospective nature of the study? Yeah, well, of course, the limitations are large. It's a retrospective observational study. It, I think, is more hypothesis generating than anything else. There are some other limitations, just to be uh, uh, for full disclosure, I'll mention. Because our data, the nature of this database included resuscitation details only over the first 24 hours, to avoid survivorship bias, also called mortal time bias, we limited consideration to patients who survived at least 24 hours after the onset of shock. So we can't say anything. It would be wrong to extrapolate this information to the people who survived less than that. Of course, you never know when you start how long somebody's going to survive. Second is, this is, I would call it the beginnings of an effort to try to understand the complex interactions between fluids and vasoactive drugs. As the editorial accompanying this paper pointed out, we need more information about this. And in particular, our database had limited information about the nature of vasoactive drugs. What you'd really want to know is not just when they were begun, but which drugs, what doses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That dramatically magnifies the complexity of figuring out the answer, but it is a much more important set of questions than just when you start the vasoactive drugs. Another limitation, as we said in the paper in the discussion, is we did not have exact blood pressure values. All we knew is that the patient complied with the consensus threshold for divining septic shock according to the American European Consensus Conference, and that is a systolic less than 90 or a drop of greater than 40 in the systolic blood pressure. But boy, it would have been nice to be able to include the 
actual blood pressure as a covariate in these models, and, and we didn't have that information. So I would say that this is, I'm not pretending this is definitive, I'm, I'm certain it's not. It's highly suggestive. Our findings were basically that we want to aggressively volume resuscitate people in the first six hours and we want to, as you said, I think you put it nicely, we need to make sure that we adequately resuscitate them before we start vasoactive drugs. The trick, of course, <laughs> is what do we mean and how should we decide that we've adequately resuscitated people? What are the actual endpoints, targets, how do we know we've done the right thing? Because our measures of the adequacy of perfusion and resuscitation are awfully gross. That's a very important point, isn't it? The, the ability of our studies to target certain resuscitation endpoints are very arbitrary, aren't they? How do you think that that's going to be overcome in studies in the future? Oh, God, I wish I knew the answer to that. But you're right. It's very crude. Not only is it very crude, I'll point out it makes the implicit assumption, the surviving sepsis guidelines, uh, trying to f go for a map of over 65, that pretends that one size fits all. And that's probably not true physiologically. I've met people whose blood pressures are never, their maps are never over 65. And so uh, when they're well at home walking around. And so I think... I, I wish we had better tools for assessing the adequacy of perfusion, either objective tools or maybe maybe we just need to go step, take a step backwards and stop thinking that it's about numbers and recognize that the clinical assessment of the adequacy of perfusion is the patient awake and making sense. Are they making a reasonable amount of urine? Things like that. But even there, we have limited insight into how the various organs are doing. Certainly on a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour basis, our measurements are quite crude and limited to only a two or three organs. Alan, I'm very interested to hear your thoughts now on how the results of this study fit with some what would appear on the surface as conflicting evidence. In recent times, we've seen some evidence in intensive care that restrictive fluid practice may improve patient outcomes, that very strongly positive fluid balances are associated with poor outcomes. In addition to that, the release recently of the ARISE study and the process trial indicating that forward loading of fluids doesn't seem to improve outcomes. What are your thoughts on this? How does this interact with your study? Well, so let me address, I think there's two different questions in there, so permit me to address them separately. The question of exuberant positive fluid balance and harm is interesting. So there are some studies that suggest that and others that do not suggest it. So it's hard to know how exactly to respond because I think that that data is far from definitive. On the other hand, it's plausible. But those are different studies done in different ways. But I will also point out that to my knowledge, none of the prior studies have assessed the impact of variable fluid volume and variable treatment with vasoactive drugs simultaneously concomitantly in an analysis as we've done. So I guess what I'm saying here is that if you do an analysis of fluids and don't take account of in some important way of the concomitant use and the interacting concomitant use, because our study shows that these are not independent influences, that they're dependent influences, the interacting influences of the vasoactive drugs, then you are studying an incomplete question. 
Now, having said that, I'll make one other comment about our study. I've heard several experts talking about this positive fluid balance business and opining that perhaps the issue is it's not that maybe these aren't actually in conflict because our study looked at resuscitation only over the first 24 hours. And it may be, and I've heard people say, that you need to give them tons of fluid at the beginning and then after some reasonably short period of time, maybe that's a day, maybe it's a little more than a day, once their hemodynamics have stabilized, now it's time to deal with all of that fluid we gave them by actively sucking it out of them with diuretics or some other modality. So being very aggressive in the first 24 hours isn't necessarily the same as saying we don't respond to that in, at 72 hours, for instance, by aggressively diuresing them. So that's one issue. The second issue about ARISE and process is this. Those two randomized trials of early goal-directed therapy are quite different from our study. They were assessing whether imposition of specific therapeutic targets and a mechanism for assessing those targets influenced outcome. And only after the fact did they compare the use of fluids and vasoactive drugs between groups. As you pointed out, both of those found that between the arms of the study, the different amounts of fluids given, which were, by the way, quite small, 250 mils or 750 mils between the arms of the study, that those differences did not impact outcomes. But that's not what they were studying. They did not set out to randomize people to more or less volume. They randomized people to this way or that way of defining and achieving targets, therapeutic targets like blood pressure, CVP, etc. Our study, on the other hand, compared outcomes as a function of what I would call the wild-type use of fluids and vasoactive drugs. It's from an observational database. There was no protocol for what people should do, and almost certainly different intensivists used different targets of what they consider adequate for different patients. It wasn't uniform. So while we found that more early fluids over the first six hours was dramatically associated with better outcomes. And they found that relatively modest differences in fluid volumes over that same six hours was not associated with differences in outcomes. I feel this is like apples and oranges, but trying to take three steps back and look at it all together, I think that those findings and our findings, and to be fair, all of the other findings that have looked at fluids and oppressors and sepsis and septic shock point to a number of important uncertainties. First, we're uncertain in what targets should be used and we're uncertain about how they should be met. So ARISE and PROCESS, we're looking at the first part of that, what targets should we use, how should we measure adequacy. We were looking more at how whatever variable targets might be chosen by the individual intensivists in our study, how they should be met. So I don't think that those are necessarily in conflict because again, our studies and their studies, those studies are a bit like apples and oranges. Alan, your study has been very important in raising some this hypothesis and shedding some light on the way that our initial resuscitation should be performed. What are your thoughts on how this should be further elucidated now? Well, it's easy to say but hard to do. I think that recognizing, as this study suggests, that looking at fluids or vasoactive agents in isolation will almost certainly always give an incomplete picture. We need to start working on designing interventional trials or more complex retrospective analytic studies with databases that have more detailed information about pressors. We need to try to tease this out. And because it's complicated, we're not going to tease it out by doing simple studies. 
simple studies looking just at this fluid or whether to give when to start pressors or which pressors to use are, I don't believe, ever going to be able to tease out the full nature, the true nature of the interacting effects of these two modalities for treating shock. I think we need complex studies. We're going to have to break the problem down into multiple studies. I can't even imagine a single study that can answer all these questions. We're going to need a body of literature over some period of years to really try to tease out this, these very complex interactions that almost certainly existed before we did this study, and I think we've demonstrated, at least strongly suggested, that those interactions are real. Alan, congratulations on the publication of your paper, and we look forward to hearing further results from your group in the future. Thanks for joining us Thank today. You. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. Mark your calendar and join more than 6,000 members of the critical care community in the Valley of the Sun for SCCM's 44th Critical Care Congress to be held January 17th to 21st, 2015 in Phoenix, Arizona, USA. Visit www.sccm.org slash congress to register and for more information. Todd Fraser, MD, is an intensivist and retrieval physician based on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland, Australia. Dr. Fraser completed his undergraduate training in Melbourne before undertaking specialist training in hospitals in Geelong and Sydney. His specialist career has included time as a director of intensive care at Mackey Base Hospital in Queensland, regional director of training for Care Flight Medical Services, and as a staff intensivist and flight physician. Dr. Fraser has extensive experience in critical care education, including simulation, web-based training tools, examination preparation courses, and instructional video. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.